0: Section twenty one of the Bachelors Club by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirteen Lady Day. I don't think I mentioned what a charming woman the mother of the Graces is. She belongs in a sense to what plain, honest, mice fearing ladies call the Shrieking Sisterhood, for she is a Blue Ribbonite and speaks in public. THIS IS NOT SO BAD AS A BLUE STOCKING, FOR ALTHOUGH IT SEEMS TO BE AGREED THAT A WOMAN CANNOT KNOW ANYTHING AND YET BE BEAUTIFUL, THERE APPEARS TO BE NOTHING IN TEMPERANCE THAT IS NOXIOUS TO FEMININE CHARMS. Charis, SO I IN MY OWN MIND THINK OF THE MOTHER OF THE GRACES, IS A JUNO-LIKE WOMAN, WITH A NECK LIKE ONE OF THE SAME GODDESS'S SWANS. HER BEAUTIFUL FEATURES ARE ALIVE WITH INTELLIGENCE AND KINDLINESS, HER VOICE IS SOFT AND MUSICAL. HER MANNERS ARE SWEET AND PERFECT. SHE IS THE INCARNATION OF ALL THAT IS MOST ADORABLE IN WOMAN. HER HUSBAND IS A STOCKBROKER. HIS ONLY PLEASURE IS IN HIS WINE CELLAR, WHICH IS STOCKED WITH THE FINEST VINTAGES. DAILY CONTACT WITH THIS CHARMING LADY HAD MATURED AN IDEA ENGENDERED IN MY MIND ALREADY AT OUR SECOND MEETING. Charisse COULD BE MADE A FORCE TO RAISE AND PURIFY THE STANDARD OF ENGLISH HUMOR her sweet and gracious life had hitherto illuminated but a narrow circle what if i made its beams co-extensive with the country what nobler mission could a woman ask to be born for than to do much needed service to our decadent comic literature after the death of at home every monday i had been gratified to receive from an old friend the offer of the editorship of a new comic paper he was projecting It was to have an entirely original feature in the shape of jokes. This was the only condition the proprietor made. The rest was to be left entirely to my discretion. I had long ago analyzed modern English humor, even as Aurority had analyzed the modern English novel, though with more accuracy. Twenty percent of the stuff is of complex composition, embracing numerous ingredients, some of which would make even blue litmus paper blush, the rest resolves itself simply into two great genre, technically called drunks and mother-in-laws. There are 60% drunks to 20% mother-in-laws, although the division is rather cross. Under drunks are comprised numerous species, involving latchkeys, cabmen, posts, staircases, vigil-keeping wives, gutters, etc. Under mother-in-laws are embraced every variety of connubial killjoy, including even other women. It was obvious that in my comic paper these elements must be eschewed. But could I entirely eliminate them? They are so easily invented. I might be so easily tempted to put in one or the other as a fill-up. Besides, what rigid watchfulness would be required to keep them out of a contributor's copy? The thought of the Herculean task before me unnerved me. I was on the point of declining. Then I met Charisse. If I could prevail upon Charisse to be my mother-in-law— i could edit this paper with a cheerful self-reliance this pure and precious thing in mothers-in-law this combination of the temperance oratrice with the angel would effectually drive off all drunks and mother-in-laws as by centrifugal force apart from her dread criticism of such imbecilities after the fact the thought of her sweet and gracious ways would inevitably keep them out in the first instance I should be driven to insert real wit and humor. To have the conventional fatuities about mother-in-law would not only be a libel on the kind, it would be an insult to my own. Considering that every man's mother is a potential mother-in-law, there seems to be something verging on filial disrespect in this constant shivvying of legal maternity. As for drunks, there can be no doubt that the good-humored, rollicking treatment of a bestial subject does much to perpetuate the evil. The drunkard is pictured as a comic personage instead of a disgusting animal. Charisse was great on this. She said that the drunks, whatever disagreeable difficulties they depicted the drunkard in, never served as a moral deterrent to anyone. No comic paper had ever lured one single bibulous being from the paths of adulterated alcohol. Drunks, she had said from the platform, were like the intoxicated blackguard whom the good son of the Talmud, taking his father for a constitutional, pointed out to his venous parent as a scarecrow and a warning. The good-for-nothing Hebrew prodded the refuse of the roadway with his foot till the miserable creature rolled on his back and gaped. Then the father asked him where he got such good wine from. Evidently, then, the salvation of English humor lay in securing charis for a mother-in-law such an opportunity occurs but once in a generation. This godsend de belles lettres had fallen at my feet. Was I to turn away impiously? In my hands Charisse had been appointed an instrument for the renaissance of English comic writing. Should I approve myself too weak to wield it? No, the hour had come and the mother-in-law. The man should not lag behind the one drop of bitter in my cup was that this great thing like all great things could not be achieved without sacrifice i should have to marry and with me the president treasurer and secretary of the committee and all the members of the bachelor's club would have to marry it was not a mere sacrifice that was demanded by the interests of art but a holocaust i could martyr myself with pleasure but was i justified in sacrificing the bachelor's club on the altar of marriage did it not behoove me to be all the stronger that the yoke had been left on my unaided neck? Should I not stand like a rocky pillar against the whole Atlantic of matrimony? Were it not better that there should be written on my tombstone Impervidum ferient Rune? Let English humor perish. The Bachelor's Club must be saved. And yet there were other sides to this perplexing polygon. Why should the Bachelor's Club be wound up even if I married? could i not keep it up till such time as new candidates appeared there was only the rent to pay the waiters had sacked themselves like rats deserting a sinking ship they never returned since i put them out on that memorable night when the great snow which has been falling ever since commenced to fall and even if no fresh members ever appeared the impression that it was a charity perhaps a refuge for poor creatures who could not get wives might gain ground more donations might accrue especially if the institution were judiciously advertised by misleading paragraphs in the newspapers sanctimonious circulars and broadcast publication of the names of donors were there not many instances of similar charities and do they not play a noble part in the economy of existence fostering the higher feelings of our nature and bringing opportunities for abnegation to our very doors but for false beggars there would be little true charity in this world THE BACHELOR'S CLUB WAS A GOING CONCERN. IT WOULD BE SHEER EXTRAVAGANCE TO WIND IT UP IF I MARRIED, ESPECIALLY AS I SHOULD THEN WANT MONEY. IT MIGHT STILL GO ON OF ITSELF, AND IF IT GOT GOOD ENDOWMENTS IT MIGHT LOOM LARGE IN MEN'S EYES AND MAKE A BRAVE SHOW, THOUGH IT HAD NOT A SINGLE MEMBER IN THE WORLD. NO, THE BACHELOR'S CLUB NEED BE NO OBSTACLE TO MY SECURING CHARICE. THIS SETTLED THE ADVANTAGES OF MATRIMONY RUSHED UPON ME IN A COHORT. I had always felt it hard to give away costly wedding presents and get only miserable bits of wedding cake. If I married I should reverse the sides of the bargain and get the better of it. The money expended on presents would then only have been lying out at compound interest. It is so provoking to be fleeced by one's best friends. Lifelong celibacy would mean the entire loss of all these investments. It would never occur to these cooing couples to say, "'Paul is going on a month's holiday. "'Let us club together and give him a good send-off. "'Or Paul has cut a new tooth. "'Let us give him a new umbrella. "'His present one is so bad and bulging. "'No, they would stick to my money and never say a word about it "'unless I made a wedding feast and invited them to send it back. "'If for nothing else but to annoy his friends, a man ought to marry. "'Again, I am very fond of walking tours in the country.' but as i have remarked before done on foot they are tiresome and tedious i have always envied the men who flew along on a bicycle while i was tooling footsore towards the mocking mile-post but i have never ventured to bestride a bicycle it is an animal that i hold in suspicion it has no discipline no steadiness it reels to the right or the left as though it were drunk and lurches towards the gutter it is a machine that can only be recommended to suicides A tandem I consider an unmanly and cowardly substitute. But if I could combine safety with temerity by using a sociable, one of the dearest dreams of my life would be realized, and walking tours would be robbed of their thorn. Now, you cannot divide a sociable with a man because, like a tandem, it is so obvious a mask of cowardice. Two men might just as well ride two bicycles. No, it is only with a woman that one can share a sociable— for then it is a concession to her weakness and the mark of a nature solicitous for others. Such a partner on protracted walking tours can only be obtained by marriage. Then there was the great snow, the downfall that had started in November, and it continued for three weeks and was still going on, had to be unprecedented. The oldest inhabitants of the English workhouses could not remember anything like it, though this may have been the fault of their ailing aged memories. The snow stood in heaps like the congealed waters of the Red Sea while the traffic passed through the middle like the army of the Israelites. Millions of men found employment in shunting the snow towards the gutters and the sidewalks as soon as it fell. Architecture was reduced to a dead level of amorphous white, and the tons of snow on the roofs caved in numerous buildings. The world was one wide whirl of fleecy flakes, Haltzing around to the music of the winds. It was a hard time for the poor, and for widows and orphans, whose morning was quite blanched by the ceaseless snow. But everybody was happy, though avalanches slid down the chimneys and put out the fires, and fountains percolated through the ceilings, and cascades poured from the tiles. Such a snowstorm had never happened before. The like of it had never been seen in the memory of Englishmen. Perhaps it was turned on for this occasion only. It might never happen again in the whole history of England. And if it did, every one had a chance of being the oldest inhabitant by that time. What a tale to tell in the dim years of the future, when posterity boasted of its snowstorms! How we would annihilate the miserable pretensions of our descendants when they boasted of the rigor of their winters. How we should recount it to our grandsons again and again. How we should freeze their young blood with a tale of the great snow! Why should I be debarred from the supreme enjoyment, in itself enough to counterpoise years of suffering? I had no grandchildren, nor was likely to have any at the rate I was going on. Decidedly, I must marry and have grandchildren to whom to tell the tale of the great snow, and I must marry quickly, or else I might have to leave without seeing them moreover unless i married shortly i should probably never marry at all a few days after i had concluded that my retirement need make no difference to the existence and prosperity of the bachelors club i received a lucrative offer for the transfer of our rooms this decided me to drop the idea of keeping up the club especially as i was anxious to utilize my experiences of it in book form and the charity would always be continued under another name and count even the readers of these lines among its donors. So I closed with the offer, though there was more in it than I bargained for. Too late I discovered that the club apartments were to be converted into a newspaper office. In due course the editor of the matrimonial news was installed in our sanctum, while the pernicious paper itself was published in the smoking-room, and the contents bills were posted over our maxims, but this by the way, to return to my marriage. If I published a bachelor's club necessarily embolding so much misogyny and such fell high treason to the queen of hearts, the odds were I should never get a wife. I did not want one at the present, but who knew that I might not want one some day? Wives have many uses, as Bacon has pointed out. Was it wise, was it prudent, to cut myself off from all chance of getting one? No, if i was ever to marry it must be before the publication of the bachelor's club and there was another consideration which limited my time of single blessedness still more straitly. christmas was coming if i married on christmas day a great economy of enjoyment would be effected. christmas party would do as the wedding party it is such a bore to be jolly and if you can kill two birds with one stone proverbial sagacity recommends the massacre THE CHRISTMAS DINNER WOULD DO FOR THE WEDDING DINNER ALSO. INSTEAD OF THE DIETARY FALALS, WE SHOULD HAVE WHOLESOME roast BEEF AND PLUM PUDDING. THERE WAS NO TIME TO LOSE. IT IS A MATTER OF COMMON REMARK THAT CHRISTMAS COMES BUT ONCE A YEAR. BY NEXT CHRISTMAS MY BOOK WOULD BE PUBLISHED. THEN A GATE OF MATRIMONY WOULD FOREVER BE SHUT IN MY bachelor FACE, AND TO ME, AS TO THE EQUALLY FOOLISH VIRGINS, A VOICE WOULD WAIL. TOO LATE too late you cannot enter now besides unless i married i should never be able to utilize that witty wedding speech which i found among mandeville brown's manuscripts the date of the wedding settled the only problem now left was by which of Cherise's daughters to become her son-in-law and save english humour Maud, alice or kitty each was as good as the other was there any way by which i could choose among them It is always unpleasant to marry one out of several daughters because it makes such invidious distinctions. This shows the advantages of polygamy over monogamy. The unpleasantness was increased for me by the fact that there was no reason why I should make any distinction at all. Tossing up suggested itself to me, but I am averse from gambling. For hours I was racked by doubt, then I bethought myself that if I was to be martyred I might as well make as good a thing out of it as any other martyr. Why not choose the girl who was best adopted to my idiosyncrasies? The reader may have gathered from these records that I am one of those unfortunate persons who find it difficult to leave a room. When I pay a visit I never know when to go. The personal magnetism of the company draws me like a bit of steel. I cannot tear myself away— I sit listening and looking about me till I fancy my entertainers get annoyed. Half a dozen times I get up awkwardly to go away. But I sit down again without success. As a visitor I have too much staying power. Now if I could go out visiting with a companion who would always give me the cue when to go, who would take me away despite all my uneasy efforts to remain, this shadow of my life would be lifted. As I was to marry— I might as well marry a woman who would do this. I set myself to watch the Three Graces carefully, so as to ascertain which could leave a room quickest. It did not take me long to discover that it was Kitty. When I came into any room and she was there, she always left it quicker than any one else of the company. Kitty then must be my future mother-in-law's first married daughter. I took an early opportunity of informing Kitty of the fact I waylaid the bright violet-eyed creature with the sunny hair and the dainty figure and the saucy tongue in a curtained niche of the ballroom, for no nivious deluge could give pause to the pleasures of Bayswater. She did not seem at all surprised, which surprised me, and she declined, which surprised me still more. She made the usual sororal protestations, but if she became my sister Charisse would have become my mother, and it was not a mother I was marrying for, but a mother-in-law. I had a mother. I had had one from my earliest infancy. I pressed Kitty for reasons, and she confessed with a pretty blush and a sigh that her heart was seared. I saw that she still cherished the memory of Mandeville Brown. I took her soft tiny hand and pressed it in my suit hard, and she stood there in all the flush of youth and insolent loveliness, with her heart beating quickly beneath her gauzy ball dress and the voluptuous music of the waltz swinging dreamily to and fro i felt quite piqued by her refusal as i looked into her beautiful eyes i felt that i had been right in deciding upon marriage it was well that english humour should be purified and elevated high ideals in life and literature seemed easy to discern and to follow by the light of those violet orbs all things fair and noble seemed fairer and nobler when I held her gentle fingers. It seemed to me as if the world would grow dark and my new paper would not contain jokes, if she took those dainty digits away. I felt that I should not even need to run a charity if she only consented to become my mother-in-law's daughter. What mattered to me is that she still thought of Mandeville Brown, that she loved the Bedlamite, i did not want her love any more than she could have mine she did not love me true but then i did not love her surely two negatives like that should result in an affirmative when i made my proposal but she still shook her head in a silence that was not consent her obstinacy was maddening me the waltz swang on and you are determined to ruin my life "'I whispered hoarsely as I thought of the coming comic paper "'with its drunks and its mother-in-laws. "'It is not my fault,' she said plaintively. "'I am sure I am very sorry. "'Please let me go. "'The waltz is half over, "'and my partner must be looking for me everywhere. "'Your partner stands here,' I answered her, "'gripping her hand more fiercely. "'Your partner for life.' "'No, I cannot give you the whole program,' "'she rejoined resolutely.' there must be some reason behind this something you are hiding from me i said bitterly you led me on to believe that you did not love me and now you are throwing me over as if that were a sufficient excuse no there is something else till you tell me what it is i will not let you go then i will tell you she said you offer me your name and fortune i do not object to the fortune but the name i can never take I do not mind the Paul, that is nice enough, but Pry, become Mrs. Paul Pry, indeed. What is the matter with the name? I asked hotly. It is a lovely alliterative name, and this is the first time I have heard anyone find fault with it. That may be, said the beautiful little minx, tossing her golden hair, but I prefer my own. Oh, Kitty, that is such a nominal difficulty, I cried. It is fatal, she said decidedly, so now you know. Cheer up. You'll get over it. Never, I cried, as I thought of poor English humor. No, she said, her violet eyes overbrimming with saucy light. What will you do, then? Her question restored me to myself. My duty faced me, cold and stern. I shall marry Maud Orallis, I said quietly. Kitty flushed. "'None of my sisters shall be Mrs. Pry," she said hotly and impatiently. "'Indeed,' I sneered, "'we shall see.' Her selfish indifference to the interest of English humour braced me to suffer and be strong. "'Yes, we shall see,' she flashed back, her lovely lips twitching. "'It shall never be.' "'Why, who will prevent it?' I said indignantly. "'I will,' she said defiantly. "'I laughed scornfully.' You? I said, and how, pray? I will become Mrs. Pry myself. The ballroom swayed around me as though it had joined in the waltz. The dreamy music sounded far off like the strains of some celestial melody. The blood coursed in delicious delirium through my veins. I caught the bewitching little beauty in my arms and kissed her. English humor would be safe after all. FOR THE LOVE OF LETTERS I KISSED HER THANKFULLY AGAIN AND AGAIN. MY LIPS WERE GRATEFUL TO HER. THE PROPRIETOR OF THE PROPOSED COMIC PAPER INSISTED ON SITTING NEXT TO US AT SUPPER, MUCH TO OUR ANNOYANCE, AND TOLD ME HE HAD GIVEN UP THE IDEA. ALL HIS FRIENDS HAD WARNED HIM THAT IT WOULD NEVER DO TO GIVE THE PUBLIC NEW JOKES, THAT THEY WOULD NEVER RECOGNIZE THEM, THAT THEY liked TO SEE OLD FRIENDS AND NEVER TIRED OF DRUNKS AND mother in laws THAT IF A MAN MADE A JOKE THAT TICKLED THE PUBLIC, he could make it his fortune by repeating that joke for the rest of his life, that they would not let him do anything else, and that if he made another joke his reputation as a humorist would be gone, that new jokes were like new men, it took them a long time to achieve recognition, that it was better to stick to the old jokes, and that he preferred dropping the idea of dropping a lot of coin over it. Even this bachelor's club of yours, he said, will fall flat i said it would go through the manuscript carefully and cut out all the jokes so that the critics might praise the artistic restraint and the public buy my book i also pointed out that like many a greater fool i relied largely on my title and that a book with such a title ought to go even if it were worth reading for it could not fail to excite the liveliest interest in matrimonial circles i said that the faithful prosaic chronicle of the facts always had a charm for the public as might be seen from the success of the police news and the stock exchange quotations i admitted that the reasons which had induced my fellow-members to marry were rather commonplace none of the bachelors had a spark of the wild originality of the gentleman who advertised recently in a mauritius paper as follows a stamp collector, the possessor of a collection of 12,544 stamps, wishes to marry a lady who is an ardent collector and a possessor of the blue penny stamp of Oricius, issued in 1847. Still I ventured to think that ordinary as were the stories I had to tell, something was gained by sticking close to the truth in all its naked and unenameled beauty and pressing kitty's hand to reassure myself that i did not intend to back out and blight her life now that english humour could not be saved after all i added that i didn't care if the bachelors club was a failure and now as i sit on the last night of this strange and mournful year and gaze from the window of the bournemouth hotel towards the sea that moans beneath a phantasmagoria of recollections hovers in the cold starlight my eyes fill with tears and kitty's loving face grows dim as those wed faces of my comrades gleam in the spectral air one short year ago we sat all together in a bachelor's club speeding the parting year with careless carousal and cynic chat and now we are scattered as leaves before the blast how fast has brother followed brother from sunshine to the honeymoon land twelve brief months ago, all gay and healthy, in the pride of single life and the flower of celibacy, and now we lie wed and married in our four corners of the earth, Henry Robinson in the snow-clad Sierras of South America, and Oliver Green in the torrid plains of India, and Israfel Mondego in the drafty deserts of Australia, and McGillicuddy beneath the red sunsets of Rotterdam. Poor President! thee i pity most for surely no man was ever so sorely circumstanced as thou mcgillicuddy with thy macclesfield marriage all all are gone the old familiar faces gone to that bourne whence no bachelor returns at this solemn season of the year i think of you all with forbearance my anger softened by your end of thee o foxen in thy farmhouse with thy pseudo barbara and thee, O Rorty, with thy lady novelist, and thee, O little Bethel, with thy play-loving partner, and thee, O Dick Ray, with thy jenny, ghostliest of brides and counsellors. Nor shall the throb of pity be denied to thee, O Fitzwilliams, with thy rich consort, nor to thee, O Twinkletop, with thy cook, least of all to thee, O epigrammic Bedlamite, Mandeville Brown. I extend amnesty to you all, by my pious hand have ye all been preserved in matrimony on the funeral fresco though for me there was none to perform the last sad offices yea even to thee willoughby jones and to thee o dusky steward my soul goes out in silent sympathy requiescatus omnes. towards the club-rooms too i raise my hand in peaceful benediction though they likewise are married so to speak and subserve base matrimonial operations all gone vanished like last year's great snow clash clash ding dong the joy bells usher in a new year kitty's face is close to mine our tears mingle farewell farewell o boon companions farewell a last sad farewell mariendum est omnibus End of Section 21 End of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Zangwill Recorded by Keith Salas